Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have three guests. Uh, we have Dr. Strath, Star, I can't pronounce the name, Strathy, Strathy. <laughs> Dr. Patterson, and Robert Lindsay Milne. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure. And, for and we are here to talk about the book, A Perfect Predator. Um, so which one of you would like to uh, start with this story? Well, I should probably kick it off because I'm the one who kind of has the, you know, the institutional memory here. Um, and both Robert and Tom, um, you know, featured in this story in, in a lot more important ways than I did in a way. Um, my husband and I are, are researchers. We're professors at the University of California, San Diego. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist by training, and Tom is an experimental psychologist. We um, travel around the world um, when we're going to conferences, and then we tack on a, a few personal days. And in this particular case, it was um, November of 2015, and we were in Egypt on holiday having a great time. Um, we were the only ones on this cruise ship on the Nile because there had been a terrorist attack and everybody canceled but us. Um, Tom thought it was the perfect time to go because there wouldn't be any crowds. And um, we had a great time until the very last night. Um, we had this meal, a seafood tower on top of the deck under the stars. And the next day we were supposed to see King Tut's tomb. And Tom got violently ill that night. Um, he was throwing up like you wouldn't believe. And I just thought he ate food poisoning, you know, and so uh, I didn't think too much of it. He, you know, usually eats more than me. But the next day, when he still couldn't keep anything down, not even water, um, I called a doctor to the ship and the doctor gave him some intravenous antibiotics and some fluids and said he'll be right as rain in a couple hours. And he wasn't. He was worse. And then um, when the doctor came back, he said, you know, he's going into shock. And Tom was, by now, he was complaining of back pain. So I knew that whatever was going on, it wasn't, um, you know, food poisoning. It was something else. But I'm not a medical doctor, and um, I just tried to kind of keep up with this. There was no hospital in Luxor where we were based, so it was a clinic. They were able to diagnose pancreatitis, which is an inflammation of the pancreas. And um, then they ran some tests, and they got pretty worried at what they saw. And so luckily we had medevac insurance through um, our university and um, we were medevaced first to Frankfurt, Germany, where they saw that there was a giant abscess the size of a small football in Tom's abdomen. But worse, um, they realized that what he had is a gallstone that, that caused this abscess to form. But inside the abscess was something lurking that was even worse. The doctor came back to me and said, We've cultured this fluid, which was putrid and gross and smelly. And he said, you know, obviously it's been there for a while, but it, something moved into this abscess and it turns out it's the worst bacteria on the planet. It's called Acinetobacter baumannii. And, you know, I have a rusty old degree of microbiology and, you know, I remember plating this organism on our Petri dishes back in the 1980s when I was at the University of Toronto. And it was a really wimpy organism back then, but... Um, over the last couple decades, 
it's become a superbug, which is essentially a bacteria that's resistant to multiple antibiotics. And in Tom's case, it was resistant to 15 different antibiotics right off the top. The doctors were just horrified. This um, superbug has caused um, ICUs around Western Europe to be shut down. So they had to report it to the authorities. And then they said, look, we have to figure out if there's any antibiotics that will treat it. So they um, did some more tests and, and it was only partially sensitive to a couple. But by the time he was medevaced home to San Diego, where we live, it was resistant to everything. So there was nothing left um, in modern medicine's arsenal to treat it. Now, before we were medevaced back to San Diego, um, I was really desperate because I was by myself with Tom and Tom was like mostly in and out of, you know, a comatose kind of situation. And I contacted Robert for help. So Robert, do you remember that call? I, I do remember a little bit, um, but I, I, I do remember saying, uh, what took you so long? <laughs> I remember saying that to you. <laughs> yeah, well, Robert is, you know, a psychic yeah. um, and an intuitive counselor. And I've known him for over 20 years. When I was pregnant with my son, Cameron, I saw Robert for my first reading. And over the years, when I've been in a really bad jam, he's been the person I've reached out to. So you might think it's kind of weird for a scientist to have, um, you know, a psychic as, uh, you know, somebody that they turn to. For, for help, but Robert has never steered me wrong, and um, he really came to my rescue because he could sense right off the bat that Tom needed help. Um, what, do you remember what you told me? No. Can you just sort of refresh my memory a little bit? Yeah. Well, this is why I started the conversation because <laughs> well, Tom's in a coma and, yeah. and Robert like goes into these fugue states and kind of uh -huh. like, you know, because he's an empath, he can really make a connection with people. And he often doesn't even remember um, what he's told me. Right. So luckily, like I, yeah, well, you know, Tom always tells me I'm one of these people, God help you if you ever get in an argument with me, because I'll remember every last word that we ever said. So Robert basically said that, that Tom is really weak. It's not his time, but he needs more energy than I could give him. And that it would be a good idea for me to call his daughters to his side. So, um, yeah, so Tom um, and I are second time around couple. Um, so his daughters are adults. They're my stepdaughters. I have, have a good relationship with them, but I'm saying like, Robert, like, I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm not their mother. And he's saying, believe me, they're standing by waiting to hear from you. They're looking for a sign. They're not sure what to do. So the other thing he told me is, Stephanie, you need to take care of yourself. This you're only like, you know, seven days into this thing. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You need to, you know, you've always been somebody who's had lots of energy and, you know, more than you ever needed. Well, now you need to conserve it. And so that scared me. And I um, first, then actually our call was interrupted by the doctor back in San Diego, um, Dr. Chip Schooley, who, um, you know, really oversaw Tom's case. And he said that he was talking with his wife, who's also an infectious disease doc. And they both thought that it was important that I call Tom's daughters and summon them to Frankfurt. So, you know, in the span of like five minutes, you know, Robert said it first, and then the doctor said it. And that was kind of the way things went in the course of this illness. Robert was somebody who always kind of had his finger of the, on the pulse of what was going on, even if he didn't understand it medically. And then the doctors ended up repeating it. So, in fact, that whole phrase, it's a marathon, not a sprint, um, the 
the pancreas expert that we ended up seeing back in San Diego called me on the phone and said, look, you know, I'll see Tom, we'll get a medevac back here. And you need to consider that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And I'm just thinking, holy crap, how does this guy do this? <laughs> Synchronicity. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a lot of that is coming back. You know, I've, um, how long has it, it's been about three years or four years now that, that, that Tom got sick. Well, it's, it's almost five years since we went on the vacation. Remember, he was in the hospital a total right. of nine months. And right. so we kind of call it the lost year. Sure. Um, and, and it also was one of the most profound years in, in, in my professional career, too. Uh, the, the, way, the, way, the way I saw things. So, and I was really afraid at first um, because when, when, when you contacted me, I was thinking that I was just going to help you get through this. I, I never in my um, imagination thought that what I'd be doing is is um, making a psychic connection with Tom um, and and um, being in tune with him for, what, eight, eight or nine months and, and, and knowing what was going on um, with him. Uh, 24-7, I had never imagined I would ever um, be involved with, with such a thing. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me and probably to the listeners is that you and I had had this connection where you had given me lots of advice and readings and things over the years, but you'd really only done a reading for Tom once. And it was about a year before we went on this yes. faded vacation. And... Yes. Um, you said something incredible to Tom um, in a way that we should have paid attention to more at the time. I think it was, I, 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 I think I said that, you know, Tom had gotten pretty big in, in those days. And um, I, I, I think I remember telling him that, that um, he was going to lose more than 100 pounds. Um, and I think I also told him that he was going to be, that, but there was also an illness coming. Um, and that he would be close, as close to death as he um, could be, and, and live. And and, I, and 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 if I recall correctly, I also said that um, he was going to lose a hundred pounds. He was going to survive, and and he had the choice of either doing it the easy way or the hard way. I I, I remember saying that. Yeah, that's what you said. It was going to be the easy way to lose weight or the hard way. You didn't indicate at the time that there was an illness coming, but that was implied. And of course. I kind of just tried to not hear that. And, and Tom, you know, did what anybody would do after getting a reading like that. He went on the treadmill and he was walking and he lost 30 pounds. And then, of course, it kind of forgot about it and it all came back. So he was, he's 6'5". At the time, he was almost 300 pounds. And yeah, you're right. He ended up losing 100. So maybe we should hear from Tom because at the time that we were in Frankfurt, he was having some pretty crazy hallucinations and those only got crazier over time. I've never heard uh, from Tom. And, and, and in fact, this is the first time that we've actually talked about it, uh, Tom and I, or, or I've heard Tom speak about what happened. Yeah, well, for me... You know, a guy who I was out body surfing every weekend. I was a bicyclist. I was a very active guy, even though I was heavy, liked to eat, enjoyed life. Um, you know, I was one of those people 
who had, you know, really very minor illnesses throughout their life. But to have your life suddenly, I mean, out of the blue, turn around and literally having a wonderful meal and then suddenly you're throwing up and then you start to feel, you know, like you're starting to lose um, your mind, essentially, uh, while I was in Egypt. And then when they medevaced us, to, by the time we got to Frankfurt, I was really very ill. Um, you know, some of it was the lack of, of, uh, of uh, fluids. Some of it was the... the uh, infection that I had. But in Germany, I started having hallucinations. For example, at that time, the first one, well, it wasn't actually the very first, but one of the very first ones was Stephanie was in the room, I was in and out of lucidity. And I said, you know, where are we? Because uh, the trip back, they had sedated me on this small Lear jet coming back. And uh, I said, you know, where are we? And she said, we're in Frankfurt. And I said, well, why are there hieroglyphs on the wall? And she was like, she looked at me shocked and said, what are you talking about? And I said, put your hand up. And to me, I could see these hieroglyphs all over the wall. And when she put her hands up, it were these sort of iridescent hieroglyphs all over the wall. And then Later, I started hallucinating even more. I was in and out of consciousness. At this point, I had one where I, I thought I was on a spit, like a barbecue spit, and I was turning, and there was this, it initially had me tied to the spit, and it was upright, and the wind was howling, and it was as if there was a hurricane coming at me. My face was blown back, my mouth was blown open, my eyes were blown open, I couldn't look away, and then the spit turned, and as it turned, I looked down, and the flames of hell came up to me, and I was burning, and every t the pain in my body was so much, it was like my body was iridescent, and I was dripping pain, and every time a drip of this iridescent pain would go into the flames, it would flare up and it would burn me. So that was my reality for the time I was in Germany. On the way back from Germany, they put me on another, uh, it was a medevac plane. It isn't like what you see in the uh, newsreels where you're on a huge plane and it's all comfortable and Everybody's walking around. It was a little tiny, like, Learjet. And, you know, there was only room for two doctors and a couple of pilots and all medical equipment. And they flew me back to San Diego. And in San Diego, I was, you know, there's, there's a whole series of these hallucinations that I had. And they're all in the book, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's your reality. That's my reality. And that's the parallel universe that I was living in. And at this point, you know, I was sinking. I knew that I was getting more and more ill. And I started having hallucinations. One of the major ones was that I thought I was a snake. And the snake was being 
photographed for a documentary about death. And the odd thing about these hallucinations is they're not like a drug hallucination or something like you might think a dream was like. These are very vivid, real, replacing reality for me. And at this stage, this snake, I was being visited by people and they would come and stand over me on this walkway and I was on a hillside and there was Beatles music playing in the background and scratchy music. Well, that part is true. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's worth saying at this point before I get into what uh, Robert's connection with me was that, I mean, when you're in a coma, unless you probably, I mean, I obviously haven't had a trauma to my brain like a, you know, car accident or something. But in the kind of a coma that I was in, it it's like you are able to hear. You're not just a piece of meat laying in the bed. You can actually hear what's going on, but not as you know, like Steph and I and Robert and I and, you know, you and I are having a conversation right now. It's a confused kind of a uh, a conversation that I'm hearing. So in this case, the way I would interpret this, and I think it's valuable for people to hear that what I had experienced at that point was they had giving, they had actually done what you hear now what they're doing with COVID patients, where they put a respirator on you, they slide a tube down your throat. And that tube is like a big silver snake. At the same time, these doctors and nurses and everybody is standing over me. And I'm in a coma and I'm having my great hallucinations. And they're talking about futility, he's going to die. And I was as near death as you could possibly be. I felt that I was approaching death. And what I was doing, I believe, with my what was left of the reserve of my brain was interpreting what I heard and what I was experiencing. So here I was with a, you know, this tube that looked like a snake going down my throat. People are telling me I'm dying. And I start to, you know, try to figure out what the hell is going on in my addled brain that's completely screwed up. So around this time, so now Tom had been in the hospital um, for a couple months. I was now back in San Diego and I was in touch with Robert daily. I mean, he was a real lifeline to me. Um, He was providing me with, you know, real life coaching, but he was also able to connect Um, to Tom in ways that science doesn't understand. Maybe someday it will. And um, I, you know, gave up trying to really um, understand what he was feeling, but it gave me a sense of connection to Tom through Robert because Robert would say, look, he's, he's not going to die. He doesn't want to die. He is fighting 
And um, he's going to turn this around somehow. I'm not really sure how. And so when the doctors came to me and said, look, this, um, you know, superbug is, is killing him. Um, and there's nothing that we can do. Um, his lungs are failing. That's why he's on a respirator. His heart is failing. That's why he's on three different medications to keep his heart pumping. And now his kidneys are on the verge of failing. Do you want to keep him alive? Well, I decided to have a conversation with Tom while he was in a coma. And Robert actually encouraged me to have this conversation because he said he should be able to hear you. And this one particular day, Tom's eyebrows were kind of, you know, just twitching a little bit. And I said, honey, I know that you're fighting really hard. And if you want to let go, I'll understand. But I want to grow old with you. And if you want to live... I need a sign from you because the doctors have run out of any, anything that they can do and we're going to need to go to alternative treatments. So if you want to live, will you please squeeze my hand? And so I waited and about a minute later, not only did he squeeze my hand, he squeezed it really hard. In fact, it hurt, but I was so excited um, and I, I knew that, you know, he wanted to live and that was great. But then I thought, oh shit, like, what am I going to do? I'm not a medical doctor. You know, I don't have the training to do this. How am I going to find something that, you know, when modern medicine has run out of solutions? So I came home and I hit the internet because I'm a researcher. I know, you know, how to, how to research for things. And there's the National Library of Medicine has PubMed, which is kind of like Google Scholar. It's all peer-reviewed scientific literature. And I put in words like Arachobacter, which is the nickname for Tom's um, bacterial infection. So many veterans come back from the Middle East with this superbug that he has. I put in the official name too, Acinetobacter bomanii, and alternative treatments. And up popped a paper that had several different options in it, one of which was phage therapy or bacteriophage therapy. And I got on um, a Skype call with Robert and I, was, I remember being so exhausted. And I said to Robert, look, I've started looking for alternative treatments and I need some feedback from you. And um, I've come across several. And, um, you know, I, I named them. And as soon as I said phage therapy, Robert, do you remember this conversation? I, I do. I might remember it a little differently than you, but yes, I do remember. How I remember it, Stephanie, was um, you said I've got, I've got three uh, different alternatives or, 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 or choices um, that, that, that we could go with. And, and I remember you telling me phages and started to tell me about them and i i remember saying that's the one and then you said i and i also remember you saying uh, um or think recall anyway you're in my mind you said well what about the other two and 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 um i i insisted that phages was the one but then you all insisted on telling me the other two and then i went back so like phages is the one yeah but I also, you did you did and you didn't even know oh, what phages okay, were which was amazing and so we can tell the listeners now i mean phage or bacteriophage are viruses <laughs> that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria so it's like nature's green alternative to antibiotics so there's they're the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. There's thought to be 10 million trillion trillion phages out there. They're everywhere. They're in our, in our skin. They're in our guts. They're in the soil. They're in the water. And they were discovered 
prior to penicillin, and um, they were used to treat bacterial infections in the 1920s and 30s, and, and then penicillin came along, and the West forgot all about it, but Eastern Europe, especially the former Soviet Union and parts of um, Eastern Europe forgot, um, they actually didn't forget about phage therapy because they didn't have easy access to antibiotics, so they kept using it but it's not licensed in the, the West because the, the studies haven't been done. And, and also the fact that phages were being used by what was then Russia, they were our enemy during World War II. So there was a real geopolitical bias that put a cloud over phage therapy for decades. So anyway, suffice it to say, it wasn't like I could just go to the doctors and say, oh yeah, let's use phage therapy. It was seen as experimental. And so um, when I asked Robert what he thought about it, and he said, are, are these like tiny little Pac-Man that would like chew up the bacteria? And I remember laughing and saying, well, yeah, I guess you can think about it like that. They do chew up bacteria. Um, and, you know, and he goes, well, he says, it's like an electric shock went through me. Right, Robert? Yes. Um I, I'm not quite sure about, about the electric shock or what we mean, but but I, I saw very clearly that that the phages would 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 attack um, the superbug, and 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 I knew that the phages would 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 eat the superbug. Um, I, I I knew how that 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 was going to happen. And just um, so that listeners know that you're you're not a scientist, right? So no, you know, I'm just like a. Go ahead. I'm well, a grade I mean, graduate hanging out with all these well, PhDs, I, you know. <laughs> so, so I don't have that scientific background, and and my background is 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 my instinct, intuition, um, things things like that. So we were diametrically opposite. Yeah, and so and but that's what I wanted the listeners to hear. It's not like you knew what phages were that you'd read no. about them or anything like that. You just sensed. And you saw with whatever it is that you have. And I mean, I kind of like, you know, was amazed by how you reacted because you just sat bolt upright and you said, that's it, go and find him some phages. And I'm thinking like, you know, I was almost giddy. And I said, well, like, yeah, like, how am I gonna do that, right? And then you said, I don't know, but something is gonna turn him around and maybe it's the phages. And if it is, not only is Tom's life gonna be saved, he says, this is gonna be something that is gonna save hundreds, if not thousands or millions of lives. And I literally laughed at you because I just thought, how could that be? And how could you know, right? I'm psychic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's I know, the answer but, to the question. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but but it's I just like your I want your listeners to realize that it wasn't like I had some kind of blind faith, right? You were helping me. I trusted you yeah. more than anything else. And that trust is what kind of gave me the energy to pursue this when like everybody else thought it was kind of nuts. And so when I approached the doctors at UC San Diego and I said, could we try phage therapy for Tom? The head of infectious diseases said, what an interesting and intriguing idea. It might be ahead of its time. Well, it turns out, you know, it was behind its time because it had been discovered over a hundred years ago. But he said, if you can find some phages, it would be a match for Tom's bacteria because they have a very specific kind of lock and key relationship. Then um, he said, I'll call the FDA and get permission to, to give it to Tom experimentally to, to try to save him. And so I went back to the internet 
and did a search for, you know, researchers that were studying phage, studying the type of bacterial infection he had. And I made a list. I stuck to the United States because I figured we were very short on time. Tom was like really hanging on by a thread. And I wrote them cold. And within like 24 hours, uh, a researcher from Texas A&M, Dr. Ryland Young, got back to me and he said, you know, I would normally refer you to one of the few companies that are still kind of, you know, working in this area because it's kind of old and forgotten now. But he said, your story really struck a chord with me. I'm the same age as your husband. If you send me his bacterial isolate, I'll turn my lab into a command center and see if we have any phages that are a match. Now, here's where the even crazier part comes in. He said, we will use environmental samples to see if we can find any phage. Well, by this time, I had done some more reading and realized that when you have, um, you know, a, an organism in your gut that you're trying to kill with these phages, these viruses, the best place to go for a phage hunt is sewage. Like, I mean, <laughs> honestly, because wherever there's a lot of poop, there is, quote unquote, the perfect predator, which is the name of our book, that will prey upon them. So literally, he said that they used barnyard waste and sewage samples to try to find phage that would match Tom's bacterial isolate. And they did. They found four phages that were a match. And the head of infectious diseases then called the FDA and expected to have to tell them all about what phages were to convince them that this is a good idea. They had been following this field. In fact, they knew all of the researchers in the states that had been working on this. And they said, look, we've been actually hoping for a case like this. You know, a guy was about to die a family member is willing to try this therapy, a hospital that's willing to cut through the red tape and take the risk, and a phage community that's willing to, you know, step up to the plate. And so they said, yeah, would you please collect some data on this, even though it's only one person, this is going to be the first person in the United States to receive intravenous phage therapy to treat a systemic superbug infection. Well, I mean, um, then they turned us on to the Army and the Navy, who were also working on phage therapy. They had um, collections of phages, and the Navy agreed to help. In fact, um, they found um, several phages that were a match. So now we had two phage cocktails. And from my first email to, to ask for help, which is February 22nd, to the day that we were ready to administer phage therapy to Tom, it was only three weeks. So compare that to an antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop and a billion dollar or more price tag. I mean, there's no comparison. So meanwhile, I was in touch with Robert this whole time he it was the only one who said that Tom was going to live. The doctors had basically given up hope. We were all praying and hoping, but, you know, some days I thought he's going to make it. Other days I thought, you know, I got our will out and, you know, went to the bank and, and all that kind of stuff that you do when you think that someone's going to die. And um, we, we put these phages first into the catheters in his abdomen because that was the closest to the abscess. It was the source of the infection. And when he hung on, then um, we took the navy phages, which were thought to be, be more virulent, and we injected them a billion phages per dose every two hours into his bloodstream. And even though he was thought to be within hours, like literally hours of dying, I literally signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day we started phage therapy. Three days after we started intravenous phage therapy, he lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. And I'm telling you, every, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. 
And Robert actually expected yes. this to happen, right, Robert? Yes, yes. Um, I was, I was um, very, uh, I, I was listening to the story um, and, and um, the, the, there's so many things that, that you said that I, that, that I remember. Uh, um, there, there was, there was one, one time when, when you were, uh, when you were deciding that you were um, going to somehow find a cure, uh, I, I, I remember saying to you that, in your lifetime, you had experienced everything that you needed to know to solve this problem, and that and that you had experienced the circumstances were different, or the details were different, but the concepts were were the same, and and that was when I said that you that I said that you would be able to find um, that cure. Uh, um, I I think you remember that, don't you, Steph? Yes, that? I do. I do. Oh, okay. And that actually really helped me. The other thing that you were very helpful with is that you said that Tom really still needed more energy. And you suggested that we start a vigil where we have, you know, people staying with him 24 hours. So we set up like a In doodle California, where yeah. people yeah. people signed up in shifts. And Tom said later that that was one of the things that kept him going, that the energy. And we, and we even brought in a healer that we, um, Tom, actually knew. And, oh. and, you know, this fellow, his name is Martin Feist. He's an energy healer, a holistic healer oh. who's based in Encinitas. And Robert and I were on a Skype Can I tell call. that story about him? Too? Yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. Tell, Can I tell, tell the story? Yes. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So, so um, we were on our, our, our daily Skype call this, this, this one day. Um, I knew that Martin was going to come aboard. Um, you mentioned his name and I said, yeah, he's the one. And one of the reasons that I was so happy that Martin was going to come aboard is that uh, not only did I have a mental link with, with Tom, but, um, and, and by the way, this was the first time I'd ever done such a thing. And since that time, I've, I've done it um, several other times. Uh, I um, started sending energy to Tom. Uh, um, and, and I, it was, it was like, I was a human, um, IV drip and, and, um, he was using that energy and, and I was getting really tired because it had been going on for a while. I'd never done anything quite like this. And Tom was on my mind 24 seven. I, I just, I, I felt him, I sensed him and I knew he could hear what was what was being said and i was really worried if you if you remember Steph, i was getting really upset with with the medical team because they while they wouldn't admit it outright they actually believed that tom wasn't going to live that that he was going to die um and and i was getting really upset because i knew that tom could sense that right in one of our in one of our uh, um, uh, Skype uh, meetings, uh, um, we were talking, and I was talking about something, and all of a sudden I said, "What was that, Stephanie? Something really significant just happened. Mark the time down, because all of a sudden I got I got hit with this 
bolt of, of, of energy. Right. Um, of course, I thought it was a bad thing, right? Because we'd had right. so many close calls. You yeah. did seven cases of septic shock and you said, yeah. oh my God, what was that? And you said, no, it's a good thing. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, um, it, it, so for me physically, it was like, you, you know, have you ever carried a heavy load for a long, long time and your legs are starting to give up? I was starting to, to give up. I, I was getting tired and drained. And all of a sudden, it felt like I was being um, supported and picked up by this very powerful force. And that's, that's how it felt at first. Um, and now, now the next thing is you, you, you told me the next day. Yeah. What so what, so what had happened is that I'd left a, a voicemail message for Martin, this healer who had worked on Tom before. And, um, you know, this was like years prior to him getting sick. It was for some back pain, but the guy, you know, has other gifts. And he told Tom um, that at the time that he had a parasite that, was you know eating Adam, and we had just come back from India, and Tom's going, "Well, I feel okay," and and the guy said, "Well, you know, you're gonna, you're actually, you know, feeling okay now, but tomorrow you're gonna feel awful." And so he um, said to Tom, "Do you want me to use some energy healing?" And and Tom said that he felt like a bit of an electric shock go through him. And it gave him a lot of energy. And I said, well, you can't prove that that, that, that happened. And that you, we don't know that you really had a parasite infection or whatever. But anyway, it, it, it put this in my mind when, when Robert was saying that Tom needed more energy. I thought, oh, my God, we could call Martin. I mean, God knows if this thing really works or that he can help or whatever. But I'd left him a voicemail. So when I was on Skype with Robert and Robert felt this, this energy, you know, shift. Um, Rob, um, Martin had told me that he'd gotten the message and that he'd started working on Tom remotely. And I said, do you happen to know when that was Martin? And he told me the time and lo and behold, it was exactly when Robert felt um, it. And so that was the first real tangible evidence, at least for me, that, you know, that Robert, whatever Robert was feeling, that he was connected to Tom and that, you know, the two of them actually ended up working on Tom together, even I though they've never met. We had never met. In, and this is the, this is one of the most profound things that, and, and uh, Gary, we, we never discussed this, um, but, but um, one of the things that happened, it was the first time I'd ever psychically met somebody before. And that, and that I had, after Stephanie explained, I actually sensed that other energy. Um, it was from Martin. And by the way, uh, getting, being around this guy, Martin, uh, um, his, his, his energy, it, it felt like standing in front of a great big, three or four great big water cannons. It was like, yeah. boom. This, yeah. oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now he was, he's, now, Martin's, you know, Martin's a pretty big guy and, and um, his, you know, he has these huge bursts of energy. Um, so mine was a little bit more paced and, and um, the two of us, and, and I believe Stephanie, Martin sensed me uh, connected with. Yes, with, he did. Uh, he said that. In fact, so, so we, we got out of order a little bit because um, Martin, okay. Martin and Robert were working on Tom while we were waiting for the phages. And we actually had wow. Martin come in physically since he lives close to us. And he would lay his hands on Tom 
And Robert said to me later that he felt that Robert and himself kind of kept Tom's soul in his body until the phages were ready. And of course, like, you know, nobody can ever prove that for the scientists out there, but you know what? I believe it. Um, and Martin was physically there when the phages were administered to Tom on the first day. He, he said a little prayer over them and both he and Robert felt each other's presence working on Tom while that happened. And I, I mean, I, I would love to have either one of those gifts that the, these guys have to be able to feel those little phages swimming inside of Tom's bloodstream, but I was visualizing them going and you know like martin said that he felt like tom's the left side of his body was black inside and he says it's like an anthill that's how he envisioned the bacteria like eating away at him and yet when we injected the phage it was like world war three they just munched on these bacteria and they had a field day I remember talking with Martin. We, we had a few conversations. Um, I also had the privilege of doing a reading for Martin. After. Well, no, actually it wasn't. I think it was after. Um, you, yes, you it was. Martin I gifted gift. it. I gifted it. Yeah. Uh -huh. it, was a, it was a gift. Um, and and um, so I, I, I had the opportunity to do a psychic reading. But before that time, Martin and I did have a couple of conversations um, in real life or, or on the phone anyway. Yeah. And uh, Martin, Mar I, and I asked Martin, I said, you know, do you think this guy's going to live? What, what do you think, Martin? Um, and, and, and Martin said that he believed that Tom was going to live. And, and I said, yeah, I think so too. Um, I, I'm not sure how it was going to happen, but, but I just believe it. Um, and, and the way that I sensed it is it was like um, a candle, a candle with the flame burning. And every time Tom would get close to letting go or close to uh, um, dying, um, the, flame, the flame would flicker. And that's when I knew when he was in trouble. And that's when I knew he was okay. Even if he was in a crisis, that was when I knew that, that, that he was okay by that, um, that, that candle flickering. Yeah. So is Tom, Tom, are you listening to this? Oh yeah. He's listening. All right. So, so you and I, um, I've never talked about these things with you, Tom, or about it. Cause I have a few questions that I I'm dying to ask you, but sorry, Steph, I interrupted. No, go for it. Ask the questions. Did you ever, so did you ever sense there was an other other energies or other influences happening either with myself or Martin or Martin and I I did and and moreover I actually you know I'm very privileged um, I've worked with people all over the globe and Stephanie has introduced me to a lot of people we have friends in Mexico and Europe and Australia and you name it they're there and Everybody said they were praying for me. They were sending me energy. And I can't tell you how I felt that, but I knew that's the energy I was getting. And when you guys would really focus on me, you and Martin, I felt like when I was so close to that, other side when I was it was so lonely and I was 
ready to die. That's what gave me the energy to come back to, to, to really say, I, I, I remember saying a couple of times, I, I just can't do this. It's just too much. There's, it's just, I'm done. And the energy would come to me and I'd say, life is just too important. I, I love life. I'm not going to give up. And everybody is, you know, giving me power and I'm going to use that power and I'm going to live. So mm. I did, I can't tell you, I mean, it's, it's a privilege that I don't think a lot of people have experienced. It's, it's so special. And it's, you know, for me, just changed my life forever. Yeah. To, to feel so much love from so many people. Absolutely. Well, the other thing is, is that the day after Tom woke up, after the phage therapy, three days later, he, he wakes up, lifts his head off the pillow, kisses his daughter's hand, and begins his long road to recovery. Um, Robert knew right away that, that you know, he was going to make it. And he said, you know, well, just wait for the movie. And I said, What? What do you mean just wait for the movie? He says, oh, there's going to be a movie about this. In fact, there's going to be documentaries and like, you know, this is going to be on the big I screen. I also told you about a book as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I laughed when at you. you. I yeah. laughed and I said, well, if there's going to be a movie, I guess I better write the book. And you said, oh, yeah, you better write the book. So that was actually how, like, the idea of the book, The Perfect Predator, A Scientist Raised to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug, began. And, of course, Tom was in the hospital for a long time still because he'd lost 100 pounds. He had to learn how to, you know, to swallow, how to, how to talk, how to eat, how to everything. And then it was a long recovery after he came home, too. But we started treating other people with phage therapy at UC San Diego and we also um, received some funding from our chancellor to start what is now the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America called IPATH. It's the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics and it's a nonprofit. We treat people with superbug infections that are no longer responding to antibiotics. We go through the whole procedure with the FDA on a case-by-case -case basis. And now the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, the biggest um, you know, funder, uh, public funder of research in the world, has funded their first phage therapy trial. It's gonna launch at IPATH. It's gonna be a multi-center trial. Um, and infectious disease researchers um, from around the states and internationally believe that this phage therapy now holds the biggest promise as an alternative to antibiotics because we're running out of antibiotics that will work anymore. So, so Tom's case has actually been upheld as this watershed moment in the strange history of phage therapy that has brought it back. You know, it's a hundred-year-old forgotten cure, and I might not have pursued it if it hadn't been for my relationship with Robert. And I want to thank you, Robert. I mean, you really you. have really, you know, made a difference in my life. Um, we we talk about you in the book, but the majority of the book uh, deals with the science. But you and I know um, that you and Martin both played a role, and both of you are, are mentioned um, oh, yeah. in the book. And, you know, who knows if it's going to be a movie someday. But the thing is, is that Tom and I were extremely privileged because we had the resources and the connections we did. And we wrote the book so that we could save more lives because we didn't want this therapy to be buried for another hundred years. 
Wow. <laughs> I'm, listening to, I'm listening to this and I'm getting absorbed. You know, I remember when, when, when I got my copy of the book going through it thinking, if I wasn't a part of this, I wouldn't believe this was going on. Um, I, I, I would really and truly, it, 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 it's a fascinating read. Um, and it, it is so, uh, you know, like I had no idea that, that you and Tom are the, I didn't know you were the mucky mucks that you, <laughs> I didn't know you were that. You know, I, I mean, your, your listeners are getting a treat because, uh, you know, we're getting more into the detail of the stuff that wasn't in the book. Right. But, you know, when Tom was still in the hospital, Robert, you had um, a conversation with Tom on Skype. And Tom had just learned how to speak again, because those of you who've gone through anything COVID-related where you have a loved one in the ICU, a ventilator means that you can't speak. And when you're on the ventilator for a long time, your cheek muscles, your throat muscles, all of that atrophies. And so you have to learn how to speak again. So it was a while before Tom could even have a conversation and his brain was so fuzzy. And Robert was explaining to me that, that Tom, and you could see you like how Tom was feeling. You said, don't worry and feel guilty about leaving him while he's still in the hospital. He can only see what's directly in front of him. And Tom, talk about that tube. That thing Remember that. that. Yeah, you tell, you, I'd like to hear this, Tom. Yeah, well, coming out of a coma isn't like being in the movies where, you know, you wake up and you say, hey, how's it going? Let's go out to dinner. Everything is fine. And I remember everything. You wake up. And it's like your focus, literally, it looks like you're looking through a cardboard tube. You just can see what's in front of you and what's on either side of you or outside of that tube vision, that focus, isn't there. And so literally people would be standing in front of me and move to the right or the left and they were gone for me. And as I was waking up, because the waking up is a slow process. It was like a bunch of lights on a Christmas tree um, where the string of lights are, are going off one at a time. Somebody would mention something and all of a sudden all of these memories would come flooding back. And so for literally a few months, my memories were reinvigorated. I was remembering all of the things that I had experienced. My life had come back to me. Interestingly, while all of those things are real in the sense that everybody else experiences, all of those hallucinations now are a part of my life, just as if I had experienced them. So I have been a snake. I have been on a spit over hell all of those things I've done. And so, you know, the other part of, I guess, the, the important thing for people to hear is that when you encounter somebody who's in a coma, please be gentle with them, speak to them about positive things because what they hear, they misinterpret or may misinterpret and make horrible uh, hallucinations about them. And it's really very difficult. And, you know, for every month or day that you're in the hospital, it's estimated it takes five times as long to recover. 
So for me, I came out of the hospital. I had to, as Steph said, first I had to learn to swallow, then I had to learn to talk, and I had to learn to walk. And, you know, learning to walk means I was in a wheelchair, I had a walker, I had a cane. I could walk, a, you know, to the end of the driveway and then a, to the next driveway, etc. It's a very long, arduous process. And it isn't, if it wasn't for everyone around me, all of the people who supported me, and it isn't just, I mean, it's doctors and nurses who put up with me and my craziness, but it's the family, the friends, and Martin and Robert who provided me with the energy to really manage that because it's not an easy thing to do. Well, and you know, Robert, you might remember too, when you were on the Skype call with Tom in the hospital after Tom could speak again, you said something that surprised me because, I mean, I thought that I had, you know, because I was in the hospital every day, hour after hour with Tom, I felt like I knew everything that he was feeling. But you asked him this question. You said, Tom, do you still have this funny taste in your mouth? Do you remember that? I remember. I do remember that. I, I, I can taste it myself, the, the metal taste. I, uh, that's right. And so what was funny is that like, I looked at Tom and I said, he doesn't have a funny taste in his mouth. And Tom said, oh, yes, I do. And turns out that one of the antibiotics that he, he was on, you know, gave a metallic kind of a taste and it took him a long time to get his real taste buds back. But I mean, that's one of the intangible kinds of, you know, at least pieces of evidence, quote unquote, for me, because I'm the scientist, I'm always looking for proof. And um, that really showed me something because Tom is more of a skeptic than I am. And he had, you know, all of the things that Robert had said were really validated through, um, you know, what um, Tom told me later on about really what he'd ha what he went through and what Robert could feel. I, I remember um, also the conversation that, that, that uh, I, I just remembered this now when, when, when Tom brought it up about, about um, um, sensing energy and, and, and while, while he was in the coma. I, I remember um, one, one time, uh, and, and this whole period, you were pushing yourself into the ground, Stephanie, and I, yeah. and I was genuinely worried about you um, burning out um, while Tom was ill. And um, we were having this conversation, and, and I was encouraging you to spend less time at, at the hospital. And, 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 and you said that you, you were worried that, that Tom would miss you or, 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 or feel abandoned or whatever, which, which caused you to stay at the hospital a lot. Yeah. And it was at that point that I, again, connected, it, you know, focused on Tom, and I saw how he was seeing the reality. And yeah. I saw that, that um, exactly similar, different but similar uh, uh, than, than the way Tom described it. I, I saw it as uh, people coming into the uh, photo range, and then people leaving and yeah. not even noticing uh, they were there or that they not even noticing that they'd left, but noticing when they came back. And, and, and that's how it seemed to me. And apparently that's exactly how it was for Tom. 
Well, what's neat is that you also told me later after Tom recovered that everybody who was involved in Tom's case was touched in a special way and was also the best that they could be at that moment. I mean, everybody rose to the occasion. And when when I give lectures about our experience, I say that, you know, if we can do this for one man, we can do it for the planet because the superbug crisis is unfortunately the next pandemic. It's already here. Um, Right now, 700,000 people die of superbug infections every year. By the year 2050, that's going to be 10 million people per year. That's more than cancer, more than motor vehicle accidents. That's one person every three seconds. So Tom and I both feel like part of the reason we're on the planet is to give this superbug crisis a face and to try to show that, you know, phage therapy is a forgotten cure. It's now being resurrected and that there's hope out there, but it needs, um, you know, research dollars and support. So, um, and of course, in, in Robert's case, he had, um, you know, and Robert, you know, I'll put these words in your mouth and you tell me if I've got it wrong. But you had told me that when you had clients prior to Tom's case that you had tended to shy away from the medical ones because, I you know, didn't tend to. I stayed the hell away. <laughs> I, there, was no, there was no tending here. You know, it was totally me covering my ass well, because and then, I don't know anything about medicine. Yes. And of course, you know, like I was your client. So yes, I, I yep. did pay you this nominal fee, but I can never, how do you pay somebody for, you know, helping save the life of your husband, right? There's no real way. And so, and of course you were exhausted too. I was exhausted. We both were, and we had to rejuvenate. And you later told me, I mean, a couple of years later that this actually, this case really helped um, you expand your gift. So I'll leave it to you to talk well, about well, that. Well, what happens especially is is that there, there was this point where where i believe that my role um in this was to look after you and to make sure you survive um, within a short amount of time and i put up a little bit of fight on it too um i um a little bit of time after that i i then realized that um, part of my work, and it turns out a whole lot more, was was tuning into and connecting with with, with Tom. Um, I was afraid that I would make a mistake, I would be wrong, and Tom would die because of me. Wow. Um, well, you 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 pointed out to me that I wasn't quite that important. So the other oh, thing that you pointed—I <laughs> mean, we were all. I mean, turns out me and the doctors that were treating him felt the same way. We were all afraid that we okay. were killing him. I mean, when now, when I decided to go through with the phage therapy, it was unproven, untested sure. in this kind of a way. I thought like. I could be curing him, but I could be killing him too. And then how am I going to face his stepdaughters, right? I mean, they're, they're going to always think that I'm the one who killed their dad. So we, we all went through this in our own private ways. And it's just now that we're kind of able to talk about it because there was a lot of people. We really talked about it. We, we yeah. actually never have. And, and one of the reasons is because you live in California. I live in Toronto. So we... we We've never um, gotten together and, and had this talk before. So one of, one of the um, uh, thing, things that, so going back to that conversation with you, um, I had never worked together in a group before. I, you know, I'm a, um, a solo act. 
so, so I have never worked together in a group. So when I'm doing a reading or when I'm doing life coaching, you know, I'm saying stuff, I'm accountable for it, but nobody else uh, for what comes out of my mouth. Um, I was afraid that I would give you wrong information. And one of the things that you pointed out to me, which, which was profound, is you said, Robert, you're uh, a part of a team. And that there's a lot of people involved. It's very important for you to tell me exactly what you see and what you feel so that I can take that information and compare it to the other experts I have, and I can put them together and make the right choice. It is a committee. You're not on the line. Yep. And at that point, I said, okay. In my inside, I said, okay, I'm just going to let this all hang out as it were. And, and I said everything as I saw it with no holds barred. You have, and I jokingly say, you've got a mind like 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 Sheldon Cooper in in um, the Big Bang Theory. You've got a uh, this incredible memory, and every day when we'd have our meeting, we would go through, or you would go through what I had said previously, and I was shocked mm -hmm. at the accuracy. I never realized, and 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 I I just simply. Um, without any restraint, said exactly what I felt and sensed. Um, it was mind-blowing for me. It was the greatest uh, learning experience of my life. Well, I'm just so grateful that you were a part of it. And now that you're able to help other people because they're hearing about what you were able to do for Tom and, you know, and you don't shy away from medical cases anymore. And, um, you know, for, for Tom, um, you know, he went back to work within a year um, and, you know, wrote another 30 papers. He was able to naturally retire when he wanted to. We both traveled the world um, um, until COVID came around. Now we're sheltering in place because he's high risk. Yeah. And, you know, I'm now co-founded this, this phage therapy center. So um, this, this has led to a, a new career for me as well as writing the book. And I'm writing a, a novel as well. Um, and so um, it, we, we've all been really touched. And let's hope that this story will help other people with superbug infections get phage therapy, but that it also opens the mind of people who are Western medicine thinkers to, you know, welcome Open people that are non-traditional yeah. to the bedside. So the, the other thing that, that um, was, was, was going on as, as well, I also talked about um, how phages, the phage therapy is going to change how uh, medicine treats uh, certain infections. But I also said they're going to be doing similar type phages work with other um, um, organisms that will attack a cancerous tumor and eat down. And, and that was all during that time when we, we were, when you came Yeah, and you know, once you again, it, yes, and I, I, I also thought that that was crazy at the time yeah. and laughed 
But, you know, turns out you were right again, because phages are now not only just being used to attack superbug infections, but they're being used as nano vehicles to deliver cancer therapeutics and vaccines. Because now through Tom's case, we know that it's safe to actually inject phages into the body and that they get to where they need to go and that the body doesn't see them as an invader in the sense that, you know, it goes into septic shock and, and people die from that. So, so phages are used as other things. In fact, there's even COVID researchers that are working with phages to try to deliver COVID vaccines using phages as a vehicle. So, so you saw that know. even though, well, you yeah. know, you didn't have the scientific background, you were able to intuit and see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, after there was a period a year after, uh, Tom, and I haven't talked about this either. You and I have briefly talked about it, but um, I believe that that part of Tom's uh, healing when, when he was in that recuperative stage, Tom was experiencing um, some PTSD episodes and, and, and a whole lot of other things. And I didn't realize that but in the exact same year uh, one year in in the year after tom and and, and the phages um, i went through because I, I i struggle and suffer with, with with ptsd as well but i went through a whole year where um i had the most amount of of um ptsd episodes um, in, in a short amount of time than I had actually had in, in my whole life. Um, and, and I was constantly being triggered. Yeah, me too. Year. Yeah. I, okay. No, I, I remember that. I mean, both Tom and I had to be treated for PTSD. One thing we get into in the epilogue in our book is that yeah. people who have gone through, um, you know, an ICU experience like he did yeah. and like people with COVID are going through, that you develop what's called post-ICU syndrome or PICS. And, um, you know, so you start to improve physically, but then you realize that emotionally and psychologically that you're damaged and, and it becomes that that becomes crippling. And in my case, I had the family version of, of PICS and that's documented too, but less research has been done on it. And so the things that would happen to me is that like Tom like fell and skinned his knee maybe six months after he got out of the hospital. And I went into like a total like flight or fright, you know, kind of yeah. mode where I was, my mind was right back in the ICU. I was sweating. I was panicking. I couldn't even get the band-aids together. And I just realized like, holy crap, what's going on with me? Like he skinned his friggin' knee. And then I realized, you know what? I'm overreacting. It's like, and I can't stop it. It was creeping into my life. Tom's nightmares were creeping into his day with somebody who asked him what, you know, his, his coma dream of being in the desert was around. And then he couldn't turn it off. So we both sought treatment for that, EMDR, which is a probably a totally yeah. a new, another episode that maybe you've covered elsewhere. But there is treatment for PTSD, and certainly, you know, Robert went through his version. Tom and I went through ours. But wow. anybody who's been in the ICU or is a family member or caregiver, you're, you know, just validate your feelings because you go through a lot. In that year, or, or so, was so that that time that I was involved mostly with Tom was was what about a nine month period? Is that how long it was? In the hospital, yes, but you were involved afterwards, of course, as well. 
the year following, um, so when I was having all those PTSD episodes, um, during that time, my balance had been thrown off as well. And, and from August of um, 2017 to August of 2018, um, I, first of all, I fell on the stairs and broke four ribs on my left side. That, that was in, in August. Um, just as I was healing from those broken ribs, I tripped and fought, fell and broke my shoulder in, in November. At December, actually the week of Christmas, um, I was walking down the hall in the evening, my, in my house, in the evening, and I tripped and fell and smashed my face on the floor. I had this huge shiner. And then in August of 2018, I was, um, I was, I was uh, hit in a car accident. And I had all those injuries, um, one right after the other, and I was just thinking, well, I had a bad luck. And, and, and what, I, what I realized is that it, the effect that it had on me personally as well. It wasn't like I just had this vis these visions. I, I went through a lot of stuff physically as, as well. Yeah, well, and, Martin did too, and the two of you yeah. talked about that. Yeah. And it's all, it's all about knowing what your limits are and getting the supports around you and, right. and, and not crossing the boundaries well, well, so that right. you protect yourself, right? Well, I had never had such an experience, so, so there, was, there was nowhere in my background um, that, that my, my whole life experience, of course, prepared me for that, that, uh, that there was no real hands-on experience uh, or, or, or the after experience either, so it was, it was new for me. Yeah. Well, I just want to, um, you know, tell the listeners that if anybody is suffering from a superbug infection that's no longer responding to antibiotics, you can email our center, IPATH, so I-P-A-T-H at ucsd.edu. If you're interested in our, more about our story, um, there's lots of, um, uh, you know, all sorts of videos and articles about phage therapy at theperfectpredator.com, or you can also learn about our book. And of course, Robert, you have a website as well, right? Yes, it's um, rlmreadju.com. Excellent. Gary, Is there anything else you need from us, Gary? Well, definitely, I'll, I'll send me an email with all those links, and I can put those in the notes of this episode um, so my listeners can access all that, because it's really important. Um, I have one, one other, I do have a question. I'm waiting for your um, questions here, Gary. Yeah, we focused a lot on the science and, and the phage therapy. Um, do you think the medical profession here in the West will ever start working or start considering working with people with psychic abilities or energy healing? Well, you know, I, I've been surprised at, um, you know, of course, we're in Southern California, and I think there's more open-minded health professionals down here than other places. There's still opposition, but, um, you know, we had Martin come in on a regular basis, and, you know, I had to tell the nurse and the charge nurse um, in the ICU, look, um, Martin can't be disturbed unless there's an emergency, and... Um, um, you know, we're going to have somebody sit outside, um, you know, his cubicle in the ICU to kind of protect the energy. And they were totally cool with that. You know what? They said, look, we're not going to, you know, um, question anybody's beliefs or whatever. And some of them were just like, 
you know, very um, encouraging. And so I was always kind of embarrassed because, you know, he, you know, again, I'm, I'm faculty in the same department that was, you know, caring for my husband as medical providers. And I thought they were going to judge me. And when we were writing the book, I said, you know, we've got to include Robert and Martin because it's part of the story. And, you know, one editor who, you know, read it said, I, I want it out. And I said, I'm, I'm not taking it out. I mean, it's, it, it is what it is, right? And I, I wouldn't be, you know, honest. So, I, I mean, I think it's going to take some time, but I think that having people like Tom and me give validation to, you know, Robert and Martin and um, people like them and, you know, putting at least some kind of word in there uh-huh. that even, if, even if, if it didn't work, you know what? Even if it didn't work, but the belief in it works, sometimes that even in itself, would be something but i do believe that both of these special people made a huge difference in tom's um you know cure and recovery and i think we need to be open-minded someday science is going to catch up with us absolutely i actually recently interviewed somebody his name was um mark ireland and one of the things that he's involved with is doing scientific studies on mediums Uh uh-huh and psychics so so he's doing like you know the actual research this the show you know the validity of it that it's it, it's not just a bunch of woo-woo but there there's science behind it we just don't know what that science is that's right and i think that you know it's hard to to measure these kinds of things but in my mind having my own husband who is you know a big skeptic say you know yes it was like robert described in fact you know it was even more like that or you know this this the taste in his mouth all these little details it, it really adds up and um it was very powerful yeah i mean it there's too many too many times like where it's been verified in your story um, for it to be any type of coincidence. Yeah, it was just like Robert would say something and then the, do- the doctors would say it the next day or, you know, like in the beginning, minutes later. So it was, that was almost like it was a wake-up call. Listen to Robert. Don't discount this. And, you know, he was a real lifeline. So thanks again, Robert. And, you know, Gary, we're just so thrilled to have had the opportunity to be on your show. And we hope your listeners, um, you know, appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, this was an honor to host this. This this was incredible. Best story I've ever heard. Really? Really. Honestly, like like this, it was a total honor to be able to to host this and listen to this story. Well, that's, that's really amazing. I mean, it it does, um, you know, take some guts to be a scientist and to come out there and pour your, not just your life out there, but to say like, you know, here is the unproven side and we're accepting it. And, you know, um, like, I, I think that it's a part of the reason why Tom lived. I really do. Yes, absolutely. Well, definitely. Thank you for being on my shows. And I really do appreciate it. This was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. So are, are we done? Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. 
He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.